3: My favorite shows on TV have 12 minutes of advertising. I
4: can't get behind that kind of time.
1: Eat quickly, drive faster, make more money now. I can't get behind that. My kids say, He said to me, and I'm like, and he's like, and she's
3: like, It's all, he's all, she's all. I can't get behind that kind of like English. That'll be six to eight weeks for delivery. The rising oceans, the warming temperatures, the dying no tigers. You know, as far as that he's all and she's all and he's like and she's like, we might actually get to a version of that today because one of our guest editors today, our only guest editor today, is Cranky Scott. Cranky Scott uh, feels that uh, we have to stop saying, oh my God, or especially OMG that no one over the age of uh, 13 over the age of 13 should ever speak or write the phrase omg and then he has some rationales for this and also some alternatives but that's later i don't want you i don't I don't want you all started up about that right now we are doing all calls today the number is 888 720 wnpr 888 720 9677 888-720-WNPR. I'm just going to say the number for 49 minutes. I'm not, because I have a lot of things I actually want to talk about, even if you don't want to talk about them. And I, first of all, I want to begin by saying something, saying something about something I found on the Twitters. You know, the Twitters, they're like Kino. You know, they have to just reward you enough so that you keep playing you know, you just have to win often enough on the Twitter so that you don't stop looking at the Twitters, even though most of the time you don't feel like you're winning. But this is a win. And this is a tweet by somebody known as Cutting, And I don't know this person, although I've been following her account for quite some time. And she's an amusing person. And she has some kind of rural existence that involves ungulates. You know, she's got a farm animals of some kind. She she's got goats. As will be made clear, she has goats. So she t- <laughs> This really is funny. I mean, rarely do I find anything funny, like laugh out loud funny, on Twitter. She says, I'm in this place where I need to get ivermectin for my goats, who have lice, but don't want people to think I'm buying it for human use. Going to be in tractor supply? Like, no, really, I own livestock. See? Also buying feed. Flips out old school wallet. Pictures of my goats. So then it turns out that, uh, actually, this is sort of uh, courtesy of Helder Mira, who I do know and who's been on the nose and things like that, he's got this picture that he's found someplace else on the Twitters of an actual sign in some kind of feed store, tractor store, whatever. Uh, And it says, Ivermectin will only be sold to horse owners. Maybe it's just a store for horse stuff. I don't know. Uh, Ivermectin will only be sold to horse owners. Must show pick of you and your horse. Which, I mean, somebody raised the question, like, do horse owners routinely carry such a picture around? Would they know when they're taking a trip to the horse feed and drug store? You can tell I don't lead lead a rural life. I don't know what these places are. Agway. When you go to Agway, assuming that's where you go, do you know you're supposed to bring a picture of yourself and your horse to prove you're not using ivermectin to deworm yourself of COVID-19? I took a lot of ivermectin before I started the show by the way. All right. So, um we're going to take calls today. I do want to say one thing. I want to introduce an idea to you in terms of taking calls or in your case making calls. And then I'm going to say a little bit more to kind of maybe set the tone here. We've had a little bit of a problem here on these uh on these shows with rambling. Now, there's good rambling. In fact, there's a difference between the entertaining digression or the and the entertaining ramp up and just rambling, you know. So, and it's hard, really, to, to to line the field so that it's clear which side of the line is which. <laughs> and it may be a completely subjective kind of, you know, Potter Stewart kind of, you know, I'll know it when I hear it. But so when you call up and if you have a point, particularly if it's a point about something that's a little bit off the beaten track, like there was a guy last week who wanted to talk about spelling in the English language. But you have to sort of really get to your point pretty quickly because – Like three minutes in your life is nothing, right? Just taking three minutes to sort of get around to what you were saying, but three minutes in radio is a real eternity. So, so, um, so what we're going to do? I'm going to steal this idea from F Boy Island. If I feel like you're rambling, I'm going to say pterodactyl. That's your warning, and you've got. Just a matter of seconds to stop rambling. All right. Uh, meanwhile, I'm going to uh, just talk about a couple of things that I, I think are all connected. In fact, a lot of things are all connected uh, in a way. Um, well, I'll, I'll begin with this. So Spike Lee uh, is doing a documentary uh, called—it's uh, a documentary series called NYC Epicenters, 9-11 to 21, 2021 and 11. Uh, and— um, it's about the terrorist attacks and coronavirus pandemic and all kinds of stuff like that. But anyway, he had in the documentary series um, some interviews with members of the conspiracy group, Architects and Engineers for 9 11 Truth, who pushed the debunked view that the buildings were brought down by a controlled demolition. Now, I'm going to say another thing about I'm going to say two things about this. One of them is if you go through life And decades pass and you never change your mind about anything, that's a bad sign. I mean, you shouldn't be wishy-washy. You shouldn't be a weather vane. But you should be prepared to change your mind occasionally as circumstances dictate. So I, for a long time, have been the kind of person who thinks – in fact, I did a show. I did a show with those kinds of people, people who were 9-11 truthers. My producer at the time, Patrick Scahill, was ready to jump off the building. Of course, being the producer on this show in the early days, he was probably ready to jump off the building most days. But more so than usual, he really didn't think it was a good idea. We had him do kind of a guest editorial about it. My thought was, look, there are people, they're out here, they think these things, who are we not to put them on the air and ask them a bunch of questions? You know, I mean, what is our job, really? You know, I wouldn't do that show today. Uh, I wouldn't do that show today because essentially because in a sort of epistemic way, We've abused that privilege or that privilege has been so deeply abused that you just can't do it anymore. You can't put these outlier views on anymore because too many people have adopted them. You know, I mean, too many people now believe that and they believe that ivermectin is a, good thing, a better thing to do about COVID-19 than monoclonal, monoclonal antibodies or getting your vaccine in the first place and, and on and on. I could give you a million different examples of this, but what's happened is the outlier viewpoint – has crept so close to kind of orthodoxy uh, that we can't afford to be as heterodox as we used to be. I mean, like, we have to do things. like Spike Lee is cutting that thing out of his series, because mainly because he took so much crap about it. But, I mean, there's a reason for that. There's a reason that he did that. Uh, and there's a reason that he got so much crap about it. And really, the the entire phenomenon can be summed up really beautifully in a humor piece by Ian Frazier. Uh, it was in the June 7th New Yorker. It's called two plus two, and then it's just a list of all the states and what two plus two is in each state. Alabama five, Alaska leaning for, Arizona to be determined, Arkansas three something, and on and on. <laughs> oh, you, should, you probably want to know what Connecticut is if you live here, four point four billion. Uh, but it's two, yeah, you know like the states don't agree on what two plus two equals, which is a very funny idea, but it's also like a sadly true idea. And now what's kind of accompanied this is a devolving or a devolution into this sort of patchwork network, a patchwork network uh, of of different kinds of beliefs and truths. And it, I mean, it's really, really easy to, to see in terms of the pandemic, how, you know, one place thinks, I mean, in, in one instance, you might think, you might see, run into one point of view that is completely contravened by the next thing you see. Um, and in just a second, I am going to um, I'm going to run through a whole bunch of these for you. But since there are some calls coming in, and since some of them look interesting, uh, I think we'll take a few of them, uh, and then I'll come back to that. All right, here is Neil in Danbury. Hi, Neil.
1: Hi, Colin. Hey, uh, I was calling, you know, about the ivermectin. Yeah. I was just talking to Jonathan about that. You know, that's an active ingredient in a lot of the pills that you give your dog for, for heartworm.
3: So no wonder your dog never gets COVID.
1: There you go. I would just watch Jonathan because he gives his dog heartworm, heart guard, too. So if he starts popping those ivermectin things, you know there's a problem there.
3: Well, first of all, we should say Jonathan is Jonathan McPants. He's the producer of this episode. He's a producer on the show. He's screening calls today. I don't think he wants his dog's drug habit <laughs> dragged out onto the air, although, I mean, he made the mistake of telling you that. Also, his dog is like, you know, how would we characterize Pants's dog? His dog is like he can't have his dog, like when I come over, not that I do, but if I came over, he would have to put his dog someplace, you know, because uh, I, I would like to meet his dog, but apparently his dog would not like to meet me. So so he, this dog needs to be on more than ivermectin. That's the thing that I'm saying right now. This dog needs to be on major psychot- psychotropic medication. Of course, most dogs seem like they need some kind of psychotropic medication. Uh, all right. So that was one thing. Um, I mean, it really is. I mean, you know, it's we went through hydroxychloroquine, you know, now we've got the same kind of people, the same kind of Rand Paul, Donald Trump people who are muddying the waters with crazy talk about hydroxychloroquine are now muddying the waters with this idea of taking an animal deworming medication. By the way, my dog, Declan, Declan, Declan the dog. He takes hard guard, too. Uh, you know, um I, I don't think I'm violating his HIPAA rights or anything by saying that. Uh, all right, so let's take a call from Alex. Uh, our number, by the way, 888-720-WNPR. I don't know if I said this, but uh, as usual on Monday, it's ask me or tell me anything.
2: Hi, Alex. Hey, Colin, how are you? Um, listen, I wanted to change the subject just briefly from the collective madness you've just been talking about. Yeah. Um, maybe to, to try to try for a little collective sanity. Um After the the U.N. report on climate change um, and watching the horrors of the wildfires in the West, I've been thinking about um, a a portion of the um, Ken Burns uh, series on on national parks where um, he talked about how um, during the 1930s, the Civilian Conservation Corps planted three billion trees out west um, as part of a national sort of ecological infrastructure um, uh, initiative. And it struck me that this could be something that, even in this crazy divided country, we may be able to rally people around, the idea being that, um, you know, with the loss of millions of acres of trees out west, which uh, doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out, that you kind of need to replenish a lot of that uh, a lot of that forest land and, and uh, especially with what's been happening in, in uh, the Amazon rainforest and so forth. And this could be a really constructive thing to get everybody from Home Depot to local nurseries to get behind and to try to get a national initiative to just plant massive numbers of trees um, to uh, replenish uh, some of that uh, Forest cover, and to see whether we might be able to slow down the melting of Greenland by just a minuscule bit. So, just wanted to throw that out and see what you thought about that.
3: You know, I feel like there are projects like that. This, um, for example, in Vietnam, uh, they have uh, a, a project to plant one billion trees. The Nature Conservancy also has a project a project to plant one billion, billion trees. Um, I've seen others. I'm looking at a thing, a site called the Con- Conversation, which we which we use a lot. Um, which uh, well, I hear something from from uh, from Yale, probably from the School of, of, of Forestry. It says as part of the pro- province's billion tree tsunami, which began in 2014. So it's always a billion now. Forget about millions anymore. We need billions, and you know I think there's some questions as to, question as to whether. That's the smartest and most effective thing. I think you're right that it has a nice brain feel to it. It's the kind of thing where people would hear about it and think, oh, yeah, I'd like to do that and I could plant a tree. I mean, uh, you'd really want to look at whether this is the most effective use of that amount of time, money, and other resources compared to other things that you could do. But I I think it's worth talking about and maybe even us worth our kind of turning our – we've been talking about doing a tree show for a while, so maybe that's part of it. Um, all right. Um, all right. We'll do an English usage thing, and then then I sort of want to go through some stuff as well. So let's do that. Um, and I've forgotten how to do the board. There we go. Hi, Teresa. Uh, hi, Teresa. You're on the air. Or Teresa. Thank
5: you. Thank you. Um, I'm calling. I understand there's a lot of serious things going on, but it annoys me lately because I hear so much from news. People, newscasters, anyone, even sometimes on NPR, I hear it in reports, people do double subjects in a sentence. For example, they'll say, the police officer, he said, or our customers, they expect the best. And it should just be, our customers expect, or the police officer said. And I hear it so much, and I wonder if you have noticed it, because... You know, I trust you with my grammar.
3: <laughs> um, well, there are people who would tell you you should not. Well, I've just first of all, I have not noticed that as a repeated trope. Uh, possibly. Uh, cranky Scott, who's uh, now kind of volunteering to be the language policeman for the show, uh, will weigh in on it at some point, maybe not today, but in the future, in which case I will share that with you. I have to sort of think about whether or not there's a defense of that. So this is, I mean, basically what you're talking about is what's often referred to, I think, as opposition, right? So it's, you know, my doctor, comma, he's a good guy. Um and I mean, that's not a agra- grammatical or ungrammatical. I mean, there's a defense of it, right, that you're kind of setting up an opposite at the beginning. Um, and um, if you did it, if you did it in the middle of the sentence, it would sound less dopey, I think for example he comma the scarlet pimpernel comma is, is is everywhere um so so there that's pretty clear what you're doing right you've got the pronoun comma it's opposite comma a uh, verb uh, and everything else so i i don't know it bothers you that's the main thing right
5: <laughs> yeah but if I... You're making me feel better. And I just wondered if I remember my parochial school grammar incorrectly, which could be true too.
3: Yeah, your parochial school grammar was mainly in Latin, though. You know, I don't know if it translates (laughs) entirely well. So that's the problem. Once they got rid of the Latin mass, you all had to learn English. Um, All right. So I don't know. If I could just take a moment, I know there's some people up there on the board with with stuff. I just want to kind of go through some of this because it's, I think, an indication of the sort of. I'm just going to run through. These are all things that are connected to COVID-19, to the pandemic. Well, first of all, big news today. European unions unions have voted to subject the U.S. to fresh restrictions on non-essential travel uh, amid a surge in coronavirus cases. Uh, This is, by the way, a big problem for airlines, tourism industry, stuff like that. they are, uh, they are reintroducing the curbs, which they lifted in June. Um, and so, I mean, so that's like Europe no longer. is Europe has once again decided that we are not competent to oversee our own affairs. And it's hard to argue with that when you look at the numbers around here. And speaking of not being trusted, not being competent to oversee one's own affairs, uh, there's a Chicago case being reported on today in which um, a mother— uh, was asked in a custody hearing, uh, um, a kind of child support related uh, custody hearings, where the judge asked her if she's been vaccinated and she said no and he denied her custody. Um, he said that she could not see her 11-year-old son until she got a coronavirus vaccine. Um, meanwhile, I was reading a very interesting article on the concert industry uh, and what they're doing because obviously, you know, people want to get back to seeing live shows and stuff like that. But the, I, I was noticing that And so there are some artists who are really dealing with this in a very intelligent and and respectful and health-conscious way. Jason Isbell is one of them. Rustin Kelly, we're going to go out of this segment with a Rustin Kelly tune. I wouldn't have expected, he's kind of a wild guy, but in fact, he's really serious about this. Uh, he is uh, very concerned. He's vaccinated himself. He's had a breakthrough case. Uh, he, he thinks the show must go on, but he also thinks we're putting our professional lives at stake every time uh, we swab our nose on the road, uh, and, and they're, he's mad at audience members who won't get vaccinated. Uh, meanwhile, Van Morrison, and I love Van Morrison. I, I love his music so much. I mean, really... Certainly among the twenty, you know, artists of his type that uh, top for the top of my list, and I, I relish so many of his songs, and not even the ones that everybody knows, but some of the more obscure ones. But he's such a jerk. He's like he's like Jonathan McNichols' dog. He's like at that level of being a jerk, um, and um, so. So, I mean, his latest thing, he's been sort of a covid. I don't know if he's exactly a covid denier, but he's been he's been a covid restrictions opponent uh, all along. He's he's sort of been kind of in the, you know, he's like the Rand Paul of music or something in the UK. And then uh, he is now publicly publicly opposing vaccine requirements for concert members, but uh, concert uh, attenders. And that's going to be a thing. You're going to see more and more of that. That in some cases, you got to prove that you're vaccinated. In other cases, you got to prove that you're vaccinated or take a COVID test on the spot. But I think that second thing is going to fall away in favor of the vaccination proof. Uh, and, of course, the other person who's doing this uh, is Eric Clapton, who has said he will cancel shows at any, value, at any venue that requires proof of vaccination. But meanwhile, most of the rest of the musical firmament, the kinds of people who are wanting to tour, who are on tour, are, are really urging people to get vaccinated, saying they don't want to do shows if the audience is not vaccinated, moving all of their shows to outdoor shows. I've taking this very seriously. All right, we'll keep moving. Uh, Andy Murray, uh, the tennis player uh, at the U.S. Open, uh, is um, saying, that, uh, saying that he is vaccinated, um, and, but a lot of the people aren't. And in fact, at the U.S. Open, The um, players do not have to get vaccinated. They do not have to prove that they've been vaccinated. But um, the people who want to watch it do. (laughs) Um, They have to be able to show that they have had at least one shot, which I think is fine. I think that's a fine requirement. It's sort of weird that the players don't have to do that. Like, why wouldn't the players have to do that? Uh, Okay, keep going. 88-year-old professor at the University of Georgia um, declared his retirement in the middle of teaching a class because a student refused to wear her mask properly. She kept sort of unveiling her nose, which is actually the most dangerous part of you, COVID-19-wise. So this guy, Professor Irwin Bernstein, he retired on the spot. Uh, he's got some underlying conditions. He's 88 years old first of all, but he's got some under, under other underlying conditions and he just decided he told everybody from the beginning that he was going to be strict about this. The University of Georgia does not require that face masks be worn inside campus facilities, but he does and she wouldn't do it so he retired. Good for him, I say. This is a really sad one. Daniel Wilkinson, a 46-year-old man who served two deployments in Afghanistan, died of gallstone pancreatitis, a treatable illness, after waiting for hours, uh, waiting for hours for an ICU bed. Uh, and they were unfortunately, he's you know right in the middle. Uh, of he's in Texas, but he's right in the middle of all those states that are completely swamped right now with patients because of their backwards masking anti-masking requirements. they in their weird positions on uh, on vaccination. So he's uh, he's from Belleville. He was from Belleville, Texas. I mean, this is like incredibly tragic. And they were phoning all over the place trying to find him a bed. By the time that they did, um, he was gone. Uh, he had lost it. Um, I can keep going. Um, you know, it's. It's also true with airlines. Uh, they're kind of all over the map. United probably has the most bold and decisive policy. Uh, they say if employees aren't vaccinated by October 25th, um, they will not be welcome to work at United. Delta will not block people from working for the company if they are not vaccinated. You know, if the name of your company was the name of the most dangerous and kind of reigning variant, when you go out of your way, when you go out of your way to seem like you're not on the side of the virus, wouldn't you be like as anti-virus as you possibly could in order to demarcate yourself? You, you don't want to be the airline with a wishy-washy policy if your name is Delta also. you got a big enough problem. All right, I've babbled enough. What we're going to do is we're going to take a break. We're going to go back to the phones. Uh, then I won't even go out the number because there's a lot of people on the board. So ask me or tell me anything. Here we go.
5: took too many pills again I took too many pills again Blacked out for a week Didn't eat, didn't sleep Came to hit it all again She's probably gonna be pissed She's probably gonna be pissed Throw my dish in the yard To keep my car If I show up to her house like this Oh
1: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare.
6: Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. And <laughs> a momentary
3: hesitation about, what should I say here? We're back. Uh, we've got a lot of calls on the line. Uh, I am going to take a few of them, uh, maybe all of them. That would be really good. Uh, and yes, the more diverse they are, the better, I say. Let's start with Ron in New London. Hi, Ron. Hi,
1: Colin. How are you? Good. So I'm calling about, um, I don't know if you're familiar with David Landhardt who yes. The, uh, electronic version of the New York Times that he writes a column every morning called the morning. Mm -hmm. And this this morning his lead topic is calling a question as to whether uh, the COVID vaccines effectiveness are actually waning. And he really questions whether there should be any booster shots at all. And I'm concerned and upset about this because Uh, what he's saying is not based on any data and he's ignoring the data out of Israel that demonstrates that the people that have received booster shots are five to ten times less likely to develop a breakthrough infection. The problem is he's the New York Times, and he's putting this out right on, right, you know, with his first thing, and he's trying to lead people away from the idea of of, of getting a booster, booster shot, um, which, you know, he has no basis for really saying that, just rumor.
3: Right. Well, I mean, I don't know. I haven't really had a chance to fly spec that column, but he does actually deal with the Israeli study and points out uh, what he thinks may be a a comparison flaw in it. Leonard's a pretty good uh, columnist and a guy who kind of comes out of the world of data. And what I would say about this, and this is, once again, I mean, we should have— you know, Angie Rasmussen on here are some of the people we used to have when we would do a lot of scientific COVID coverage on this show. But, I mean, I I think there's sort of also multiple questions that are worth asking. What what appears to be the case the way that I understand it anyway uh, is that the Delta variant uh, is, although although it's the Delta variant is, you should pardon the expression, dealt with pretty effectively by the vaccine. It's dealt with effectively in the sense that if you're vaccinated and you're exposed to it uh, and, and you actually have a, a, a present infection uh, with of it, you are very, very le- much less likely to become seriously ill or to die. But, I mean, it still leaves a whole bunch of other questions. And it, the the reality is that there isn't enough data. Zeynep Tufechki, who also writes in the New York Times, has a whole piece about this this weekend about, like, where's all the data that we need to make these decisions? And, and, you know, we're kind of stamping our foot and demanding to have it, and it's all happening in real time. And you can't necessarily expect the medical establishment to figure out a, a brand new disease while it's actually unfolding. It's like trying to build a bridge while you're trying to walk over it. But, I mean, I I think – to me, the bigger question is not the one necessarily that Lenhart's exploring, but the question of if you're vaccinated and you actually get uh, 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 an infection, and I want to bracket that and say there's actually kind of a conversation going on within the medical and scientific community about what's an infection. In other words, if you have COVID, uh, if you have excuse me SARS-CoV-2 uh, present in your in your nose enough so that a swab test shows you as being uh, SARS-CoV-2 positive, are you necessarily infected? Particularly if you're manifesting absolutely no symptoms whatsoever, you got no symptoms. Um, now there are some people in the scientific establishment who would say, yes, that's an infection. The virus is in your nose; it's capable of replicating. Because you're vaccinated, it can't get anywhere else. It's stuck there in the waiting room of your nose, and, and it's it's really not going to make you sick. You're lucky enough to have a good response to the vaccination. Uh, it can't get to where it can really cause trouble. And there are other people who would say, you know, really, in some cases, what you're looking at is Viral fragment fragments, uh, and, and it's possible to have a positive PCR test with you know really very little vi- virus present there. Could you truly be called infected in that circumstance? And I think we don't know the answer to that until we know the answer to that and until we know the answer uh, about whether or not or how likely you are to spread the virus. If you look at Provincetown, even though their contact tracing was kind of weak and stuff, it looks as though you could be vaccinated, you could be protected by the vaccine so that when you get a COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, in your nasal passages, you don't get sick. But you might be capable of making someone else sick, particularly if that person's immune system wasn't as good, if their response to their own vaccine wasn't as good or they didn't get vaccinated or they're immunosuppressed. And until we know the answer to that question, you know, I think thinking about booster shots is not a terrible idea and probably having I mean, the, the real question is. Are we going to get booster shots at the expense of the rest of the world, which is vaccinated at so much lower rate, particularly parts of what used to be called the third world uh, vaccinated at such a low rate? Now, it does appear as we ramp up here that we are capable of making a lot of vaccine, (laughs) a lot of vaccine, maybe enough to cover the booster shot concept, plus get a lot of it out to the rest of the world. But that's just like a separate kind of moral question. In terms of the booster thing, I, you know, I, I, my thought would be to err on the side of doing it if we can do it without depriving the rest of the world of vaccine that it needs. Um, rather than to not do it. There's certainly no harm in doing it other than depriving the rest of the world of vaccine. And there might be some good accomplished by it, too. All right, we're going to stay as diverse as we can. We're going to go to David in Middletown. Okay, David, no spoilers, no spoilers. No. But when well, well, you can't do... There's nothing can, to talk about. Well, you can't, yeah. Yes, you, you Yes, you can because you cause you, you want to complain about the ending of the HBO series well, white there's Lotus. A,
2: there's, a, there's a lot there's like for instance we don't know how much cash Belinda got from Tanya <laughs> okay. Okay, the, the, the fact that you go. would be the fact that
3: you would be concerned about that is very amusing Well, to me.
2: Like, that's not a spoiler though I like, everything else I want to talk about y- y- you
3: don't even know whether Belinda she put the cash the envelope in a drawer and just closed the drawer because she wasn't right. I, we, we never even saw her she she could have been picked up by the next person who came on duty right. at, at that I actually can say something about the ending of White Lotus.
2: Well, the wrong person was in the box.
3: Right. There's a lot of problems with the ending of White Lotus. Let me just say one thing about it that will not be a spoiler. So, White Lotus, for people who don't know, is an HBO series produced by this television auteur, Mike White, um, and it ended, I think, on a very despairing note about humankind. <laughs> you know, I mean, it ended on a note of, oh, we're just all horrible people, and very few of us are capable of redemption, and even the people, even the person w- who excited the most of our sympathies w- in the series makes kind of a craven choice. I think that's Mike White, though. I think Mike White doesn't like himself very much. and He spreads that sense of despair out towards other people, and I don't think we should take our cues from, from that. But I think David's real problem is that he was personally not satisfied with the way that ended. All right. Uh, I don't even know where should I go next. I will take a wild guess and go to, well, we can go to, uh, to Ben. He's been waiting a long time. Ben in Wallingford. Hi, Ben. You're on the air.
6: Hey, um, I was just thinking, I called in for a certain reason and in the beginning of your show reminded me of it because <laughs> as a climate activist uh, with 350 Connecticut, Uh, we've been used to science denial and false solutions for years Mm -hmm. before even COVID started. So, I mean, we're even seeing it from a little bit from Lamont, although he says he believes in climate change and that we should take action from it. He hasn't done anything to stop the methane gas plant that's coming into Killingley from NTE, which him and his head of deep um, could do. But they haven't done it. And he kind of traded away, you know, the blame attempt at climate action in the transportation climate initiative. So, I mean, I it's, COVID is just a repeat of the tragedy of us dealing with climate change for the last 30 years. And I, I just want to tell people like they're, we're still trying to do the best we can to stop that plant and get the Connecticut government to deal with climate change in the emergency nature that it needs to be dealt with. And there's a couple of events coming up uh, directly about the plant in Killingly on September 12th in at 125 Church Street in Putnam. There's a Rosh Hashanah event to try and stop the plant. And on September 18th uh, at, in Hartford, at the Bushnell Park outside, so it's COVID safe. There's going to be a climate emergency town hall to talk about environmental racism, which we can see happening, not only from the uh, Hurricane Ida that's you know putting poor people in New Orleans out of power and out of their homes, but like you know all of the country where the poorest people are suffering the worst from not only like the disasters but the everyday pollution that is poisoning their lungs and shortening their lives. So I just wanted to ask Governor Mont, because I think he listens to NPR a little bit, to be a little more active on climate change and do what's necessary in an emergency as, instead of just treating it like a campaign promise that he can kind of trade away for something right.
3: else. So let me just comment a little bit on that. By the way, yes, Ned Lamont, big fan of the show, loves the nose, didn't like the ending of White Lotus. Uh, shares David's own concern. First of all, I would refer you—this is the most egotistical thing. I shouldn't say that, but I will. I would refer you to the column I wrote this past weekend for Hearst Newspapers. It's called Are There Any Grown Ups Left in America? And it also makes the same connection, same connection that Ben is making here, which is that, you know, people don't want to deal effectively with COVID. They don't want to wear masks. They don't want to get shots. And they're not grown up enough to do it for the sake of a larger community. And they're in the, in to whatever degree they feel inconvenienced by something, uh, their likelihood of doing it goes drastically down. And that's the same thing with climate change, which has been – I mean, I've been watching this happen since the 90s. That to whatever degree it means that you can't have a car – that gets twenty nine blocks to the gallon, you know, or whatever the hell else it is you want to do, or chill your house with air conditioning to sixty two degrees, uh, so that you you know can't thaw meat in your kitchen or whatever it is that people want to do. Then there's no such thing as climate change because I don't want to have to deal with what I would have to deal with. I don't not have to don't want to have to change my lifestyle and my demands because it's just too inconvenient. I, I don't want to do it. So there's no such thing as climate change. That is the way it works these days. Uh, and, and it is a problem. Um, now, in terms of leadership on this, I, I don't know, it would be interesting to sort of do a kind of a survey of governors and see how many of them have been effective on this. My guess is, first of all, I'm tired of patchwork solutions. This is the same problem we have with COVID. With, here in Connecticut, we have different COVID policies from town to town, uh, not just for schools, but for you know, wearing masks indoors and stuff like that. We've got 169 towns in this tiny little space. They have different COVID policies. But the truth is, we can't do these things state by state because ultimately what you wind up with is 50 gas stations that are trying to compete with one another by cutting things to the bone, which is the way America works these days, right? You know, Florida or whoever it is, they say, look, we'll cut our taxes. We'll do kind of a race to the bottom in terms of services and stuff like that. We'll be a less expensive place to live than Connecticut we won't necessarily be a well-run state or a well-governed state. But, and so, I mean, I think we do need national policies. You know, I I don't think we expect France to do this on a regionalized basis. I don't think we expect um, China to do this on a regionalized basis. I think all of the countries have to have their own national policies that everybody follows, that people can't weasel out of because they live in some province, you know. So, um, so it would be, I'm not doing this to take Ned Lamont off the hook, but, I don't think governors are going to fix this problem. I, I mean, oddly enough, a lot of the leadership on climate change in this country has come from mayors. You know, mayors, for some reason or other, maybe because they can see the water creeping up onto their sidewalks, uh, but uh, mayors have been more effective. I mean, I look at New Haven. New Haven has better climate policies under DiStefano and, and now under Elliker than the rest of the state does. All right. So uh, let's take a break. We need to take a break. Uh it's ask or tell me anything 888 720 WNPR 888 720 9677 you can ask or tell me anything we might talk about cranky scott's point of view that we shouldn't say omg anymore got inflation
7: licked. I'll get right back to you it's just a standard form tomorrow without fail Pleased to meet you. Thanks a lot. Your check is in the mail. Marooned, marooned, marooned in a blizzard of lies. Marooned, marooned, marooned in a blizzard of lies.
3: Where has the time gone? It's uh, The show is like, you know, we just only have a little bit of time left. I don't know what happened. 888-720-WNPR. That's the number. Ask or tell me anything. 888-720-9677. We've got calls on the board right now. We're going to go to Kyle in Preston, who has something complicated he wants to bring up. Hi, Kyle.
4: Hi, Colin. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm okay. Oh, that's good to hear. Same here. Um, so that's something that came up in my sustainable energies class that I never hear about in media. Is talking about like the mechanical changes that we do that actually contribute to climate change, and I appreciate the segue from the last caller. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going back to things like have building roadways, like when you do the math of it, we have a tremendous amount of roadway infrastructure in this company country, and I'm all about building new roads and keeping them nice. But I feel like we're not really putting enough into the ones that we have. That's a sideline. Sorry to ramble. <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm trying to be succinct, but. Ended up doing some math last year, two years ago, and um, we have enough roadway that we could have paved over the entirety of the state of Texas and then some, because my figures only factored in main state roads and um, town roads. So that's one of those things that I'm looking at, where it's like they absorb a lot of heat during the day and then maintain it into the night. Not to mention that when it snows in the winter, the first thing we got to do is melt all of this natural coolant off of the road so right. that we can drive on it again. Here's
3: where, here's where I come down on this. Yeah, here's where I come down on this. I mean, I think one of the problems here, and this is true whether you look at Biden's infrastructure bill or Malloy, uh, you know, had a massive transportation, a multi pronged. Transportation initiative. Ultimately, you have to pick a winner. You have to pick a strategy. You can't just try to fix everything, fix up the roads and the bridges and do a little bit of stuff with rail and a little bit of stuff with this and a little bit of stuff like that. Ultimately, I mean, you, you can't let your infrastructure crumble either. I get that. Uh, but ultimately, you have to say, look, we have a goal and the goal is to get people more and more out of their cars and into some less carbon punitive form of transportation, probably rail or really good buses. Um, and... You know, and here's how we're going to do it. We're going to make gas more expensive. Uh, we're going to get we're we're not going to make roads more and more convenient to use. We're not going to expand a four lane road to a five lane road because that'll just fill up anyway. There's some term of art in traffic engineering about that, but uh, it'll just the traffic will just expand to eat up that use. So if the traffic is gridlocked, if there are traffic jams, that should tell us something. It should tell us we got to figure out something, some way to get some of these cars out, off the road into parking lots and get their occupants into something else. Because first of all, you know, we're causing even more pollution by having cars sitting, emitting (laughs) fumes, uh, burning fuel, and not even going anywhere because they're stuck in traffic jams. Uh, And also, it it just ultimately we need to get out of that whole mindset of these, you know, single-use vehicles. But to do that, you have to have a policy. You have to make a decision that we're not going to be in love with roads. We're not going to design an environment, a living environment, that looks like it was made primarily to make a car happy. That's that's the way that you do know, if you drive down route 44 route 44 is set up not for people it's set up for cars it's for the so cars will have a place where they can go and park they have lots of curb cuts where they get off the road they can park uh, it's you know the it's not for people walking around you know or people riding bikes or anything like that uh, and we need to stop doing that uh, all right so ha! Ah, well, I say I like diverse questions. Oh, boy, this is putting me on the spot. Here's Maria from Middletown. Hi, Maria.
7: Hey, Colin. So my husband and I are addicted to this Isabella Stewart Gardner theft thing. We've watched Is This a Robbery? twice. We watched ancillary things, documentaries. We went to the museum recently, and we're just possessed by what happened and why even did it happen it seems like such an impossible thing why and i'm wondering because you're so smart do you have any thoughts (laughs) any theories about where these paintings landed and whether we'll ever see them again
3: no i mean i watched the documentary on uh, netflix uh, by the barnacle brothers uh, which i thought was terrific uh and i also listened i don't know it was I always get b u r and g b h mixed up, but one of the Boston radio stations did a tremendous podcast about that. Did you listen to that podcast? It's really yes, good, we yeah, just okay did on a long drive, yeah, yeah, it's really good um and uh actually, the woman who produced it, I believe is the wife of Anthony Brooks, who you hear a lot on these stations so um but I, I think ultimately the only thing that those things produce really is a sense of agnosticism. I mean, what you look at are situations where, you know, in the case of, of the podcast, these are really good journalists. And the, in the case of what the barnacles did, you're seeing really good journalists who have de- devoted intense amounts of time to this and really good investigators who developed intense, who've devoted intense amounts of time and effort to this and, and essentially gotten nowhere, gotten stuck in the mud. So for me to sit there and go, well, I think I know the answer to this. <laughs> Uh, I, I know enough not to do that, um, and I know enough to think we will probably never see those paintings in our lifetimes. And, and maybe wherever they are, you know, the, the possibility that they will be disgorged seems very, very unlikely. I mean, my guess is, guess is that they are in principalities that are not responsive to requests from American law enforcement. Like I don't think they're sitting in a you know, in a storage unit in Idaho or something. I, I think they're like in. Dubai or something. <laughs> I think there's some place where people, where we can't go look for them anyway, but uh, that's just even that's a wild guess. It is, Marie, there's something nice about a mystery like that that we can't solve, you know? And, and it's nice, of, nice that there's a mystery like this about something as, as what? As as rich as really gr- great art. Um, you know? I mean, so many so many things are, I don't know, so many things are, are can be boiled down to something much more simple. I think I like the fact that we don't know the answer. What do you think happened wow. to him?
7: Well, I, I don't know. Like you say, it's impossible. But I, I appreciate your positive approach to it, that it's actually not such a bad thing to have. Mystery.
3: <laughs> in life. Well, like when you watch the thing on Netflix, you know you're looking at that Vermeer. You know you're you're looking at these paintings, and there's a sense, even though we don't have them, there's a sense of how wonderful and precious art is, and it kind of makes you want. What? Like I was watching it in the middle of the pandemic, and I was thinking, oh, I really feel like going to the Wadsworth Athenaeum or the you know Yale Art Gallery. Uh-huh. And right now, and looking at paintings, because paintings are great, and they're not all stolen. Most of them are not stolen. So so maybe it's a good it's thing yeah, that we I, care about them.
7: You know, it was kind of funny. When yeah. we went to the uh, museum in Boston, we were embarrassed to let the guards in any given room where something bad happened know that that's why we were there. <laughs> we were like, um, please don't judge us, but is this where the— <laughs>
3: yeah. Well, I, I my guess is that seventy five percent of the people who go through there these days have that at least a little bit on their minds, and I think the guards are very accustomed to being asked those questions.
7: Yeah, it, she was very nice.
3: Right. Well, great question, Maria. I would look into uh, Jonathan McNichols' dog. Uh, if that dog should be questioned, uh, because he has he's been associated with a number of major American disasters. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if the theft of the Gardner paintings was one of them. Was yet another one of them. All right, here's Chris from Weathersfield, uh, a very reliable caller to the show. Hi, Chris, you're on the air.
0: Hi, uh, be quick here to me. Heard this, I think, from one of your shows. Your eyes see things. Your brain connects the dots. What I see is politics has become team sports. True. What I know is democracy, government, should be have integrity that puts citizens first. Yet, what do I see? Capitalism. That's linked with economy. That's linked with wealth maximizers. With no constraints on wealth maximizers. And that's why we don't have benefits to all.
3: Well, I and it
0: stresses me, and I don't have all the answers, but I know we have good people that can think and get back to you know the integrity of putting citizens first and linking it to however capitalism uh, that's associated with. Our
3: country, right? How- well, I, I think first of all, great call to end the show on. First of all, thanks, Chris, for that. And yes, I mean, I, I think unfortunately, the two party system in this country, which is the part system we have, and we are not likely to have a meaningful other kind of system without amending the Constitution. Um, it, it 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 doesn't lean towards for some reason or other the reallocation of power and resources. Um, although, I mean, the consistently strong candidacy. In the last two cycles of Bernie Sanders is a suggestion that people want a reallocation of power and resources. It could even be argued that Trump in his rhetoric in 2016 was appeared to be arguing for a reallocation of power and resources. And some people believed him. And most of us thought that's not what he wants. He doesn't want that. He's got... No friends who aren't rich, and uh, but anyway, um, ultimately that's what a lot of people crave. You know that there's too much concentration of wealth, uh, too little, uh, too few resources trickling down. To use a corrupted phrase, uh, to to the rest uh, of our citizenry, and you know there will be a day of reckoning. I don't know whether it'll be in a year or two, or ten years, or twenty years. Might not be in my lifetime. Uh, but it's something we should think about all the time. Uh, I would like to close by saying that McNichol's dog is named Max. So if you're with the FBI and you want to know where those paintings are, I would, if I, I would maybe even subpoena. I, I think you should question him under oath, Max. Max McNichol is his name, I guess. Uh, there's a dog who has a story to tell.